the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And joining me this time out, it is from the band Great White, Mark Kendall and Michael Lardy. And on the other side, KISS producer of, of course, Creatures of the Night and Lick It Up. It is Michael James Jackson. We talk about those two seminal albums and working with other bands, including Red Rider and L.A. Guns. Hollywood Vampire is one of my favorites. But before that, we have got Alan Niven on the phone. Good day, Alan. Pleasure to have you back. Good day, Mitch. I hope you're good. Yes. Um, pleasure, to, pleasure to be talking with you. And of course, I, uh, I, I told you that you were just going to co-host and talk about Great White, but um, it's a whole lot more. We're going to talk some Guns N' Roses, too, because they have this new deluxe box set, you know, the mother of all box set that's going to embarrass every other box set before it. Uh, it is, of course, for appetite for destruction and i think it's 87 discs or something like that but we'll we'll get into the nitty-gritty before that but great white good old great white uh let us start there i had of course michael and mark kendall at the m3 festival in maryland have you have you ever attended the m3 festival in maryland i've never been to m3 but i've been to merryweather post uh, a number of times and um you know obviously I have a, a little bit of history with Mark and Michael, and yes. it's interesting that you mentioned GNR um, because yes. I'll throw one to you. Yes, um, you could make a very valid case that there would not have been a Guns N' Roses without a Great White, and I would put that in two perceptions. One, I was not the bottom of the barrel, I was underneath the barrel when they were looking for management. Um, the last person they asked. And the only reason they came and asked me was um, the credibility of uh, being able to make face the day um, a really massive Los Angeles regional hit as an independent record when KMET and KLOS did not play independence in regular rotation, um, this thing went on to have 16 weeks of heavy rotation on KMET and ended up being the number two song of the year at KLOS. So the record company um, who had the uh, amenities for encouraging airplay were interested how someone who was working out of a tiny little cupboard and riding around on a motorcycle could manage to get more airplay on an independent than they could on their well-funded releases. So that was probably a major aspect in the thinking of them even bothering to ask if I would work with GNR. During the interview with Michael, we do talk about his connection and your connection to GNR and, of course, some of the songs that you guys had produced uh, Explain, explain it for the audience once more. Mr. Brownstone and some of these, they, they had these mixes and they said, hey, you guys, come in here and do what? Well, Michael and I were in the middle of recording an album called Once Bitten. And Mike Klink, who was the responsible producer for GNR, um, to my measure and observation, was doing a great job of catching GNR as they were and the essence of GNR. 
Um, and we got to a point where Mike was going to start mixing. And over a two-week period, I got a series of increasingly worried phone calls from uh, the Geff and A&R guy, Tom Zutout, that Mike hadn't got a mix yet. So um, after two weeks, I shot up to Rumbo and sat with Mike, and he was exhausted. He was a husk. There wasn't any energy left in him at all. It had been completely and utterly sucked dry of, of doing all the recording with, with GNR. Um, and at that point, Tom was getting worried that, did Mike really have it on tape? And I had one of those phone calls um, from Zoots, and I just said to him, I said, listen, go over to Rumbo, pick a box of tape. I don't care what it is. Just send me a roll of two-inch. Send it down here, and we'll look at it. And Tom duly went over and picked a box of tape and sent it down by messenger to the South Bay where Michael and I were working. And we were in the middle of doing guitar overdubs, so we had to strip the board and set it up for a mix and completely stop what we were doing and stop our train of thought. And we put on this roll of two-inch, and we spent four hours on it. And Mike had definitely got it. He had got it all on tape, and the, and the mix was... Um, Oh, remind me, Mitch. Well, you had uh, Mr. Brownstone. Uh, Mr. Brownstone, thank you. Yes. I'm getting, I'm getting holes in my head. But anyway, <laughs> w- w- we did this fast mix of Brownstone, and uh, the band are all up at Geffen, sitting in Tom's office waiting to hear from us. And I called up there and I said, well, I think you'd better come down here and put the phone down. And the only person who had the nerve to turn up was Izzy. And he sat on the sofa and we played the mix. And by the time we'd got to the end of the in-show, he was elevated out of the sofa and pumping his arms in the air because he realized that, you know, all the fear was un- unfounded. And Mike had done a terrific job of recording the band and the song was there. And that was the first mix that was ever done. And of course, that mix ended up on various sort of uh, singles, cassette singles, CD singles, and whatever formats we had back in the day. And... uh I'm wondering, actually, if it's on this box set, because look, I'm looking at the press release, and, of course, you see Mr. Brownstone, you see this, and you see all these different versions of all... Uh, nowhere do I see sort of the Alan Niven, Michael Lardy mix. It might be there. I'm hoping it's there, but, uh, you know. And I, I, I would doubt it. Do you want to get into the box set, or do you want to talk GW? Well, in fact, why don't we uh, let... Uh, Michael Lardy and Mark talk about the M3 Festival and what they're doing these days, and then we'll come right back and we'll delve deeply into the box set before heading over to Michael James Jackson. How does that sound? That sounds perfect to me. So here we are, without further ado, live from the backstage at M3, it is guitarist Mark Kendall and Michael Lardy. Mr. Fawn here. We are with Great White backstage at M3. Pleasure to have you guys. Absolutely great. Thank you. So I'm going to start with you, Michael. In fact, I should say we got Michael and Mark Kendall. This is exciting. Um, <laughs> talk to me about the importance of festivals like M3 for both the band and also the scene. I think it just reminds everybody that this music is still very much alive in terms of the, the performers. I mean, all the bands are still out doing gigs, and, and we're lucky enough this year to be doing close to 50 or even more, possibly even more shows this year. And 
the, the fact that that's you know, you know we feel that we're a little vital you know that you know that that's actually happening and you go and you see all the people that you know you do other festivals around the country with and and realize that that's a genre that people want to still know they can come and see absolutely mark and as he mentioned we're going to about 60 shows this year for the band right uh, talk to me about being so active because the band had a bit of a slowdown for a bit, and now it's just it just never stops. Two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen. What's keeping you so popular and in demand these days? I, I I think it's the fans. You know, the fans, like Michael saying that we want to show people we're vital. Well, they come down because they want to show their love too for for the music. And they're still there. That's why we keep doing it. I mean, as long as you have an audience, right? You, you have an act. You have an act. <laughs> yeah, now, the last album, 2017, Full Circle, produced by Michael Wagner. Right. Talk to me about that collaboration, because Michael really has a way to bring out the best in the band. I think he got, he captured that with Full Circle. Well, with Michael there, um, Michael Lardy being involved, uh, Michael Wagner told me that he he really helped a lot. And that was, so that was, that was awesome. And we just kind of... Uh, it was a great experience because we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, that's always like we're not familiar with anything here. Right. We've never seen the trees outside. We, you know, it, it was just a there. It was a great vacation, and we got to Working and we went vacation. there. We went there fairly unprepared, apart from <laughs> having the arrangements almost done. Right. We didn't have most of the lyrics weren't done yet, and he's not used to that. <laughs> but we are, you know, we literally on the elation went in with no material right. except for a couple ideas. So, so it wasn't anything new for us. And so I kind of couldn't wait for us to have a song done so he could, you know, breathe easier and take care of his health and all that, you know. But uh, that that was a lot of fun. We all we all really enjoyed it. And um, you know, he is he's a taskmaster. Michael was right there, man, ready to grab knobs. It, it was awesome, you know, because we're, we're used to having Michael Lardy there, you know. Right, doing so it. So it was good. It was good to have him. And actually, years ago, Full Circle is such a great title because yeah. back in the very beginning, before Michael's even in the band, he was the second engineer from, you know, when we were doing the early record yeah. uh, EP in the first album. And he was there the whole time, so... He'd worked with Michael Lardy before. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> you know, so, so it was like full circle all the way. So I'll put the question to both of you. Where are we in terms of new music? Is, are we looking at a 2019 release? We want to get back in the studio and do something again? Well, I think we're really interested in, in seeing what full circle can, can do. We're only into a, our first release of Big Time. Uh, hopefully, our next one in the barrel is. It's, would you say I'm all right? It's probably yeah, that's, next that's one in the barrel. And uh, obviously, we want to do a video for that. But I mean, the opportunity of actually being able to work a record. This there's a lot more depth on it than I think a lot of people realize. From just here, if they just heard Big Time, they'd go, "Okay, that's that's typical, you know, rock and great white." But I mean, uh, there's a song "Cry of a Nation" that is like so deep and different. It's kind of like. If Rock Me in Congo Square had a kid, you know, it's that that kind of energy and that kind of uh, ethereal, you know, kind of spacious right. vibe to it. That's a really cool song. There's a the riffing song. Uh, this is a life. I mean, it's 
a lot of a lot of real high energy, cool breaks in the song. So I think there's a lot of depth in the record that you know, if we keep working this record for you know at least another year, maybe year and a half, yeah. then I think people will be able to get to you know and right. get into it. Right. The other thing is it's it really is for us. We want the fans to love it, but it's for, it's for our personal energy, right? And that that I know we've talked about that before, but it really is. It's like, you, you know, it, it's hard to keep yourself motivated when when you're. Although, like I've said before, we're grateful for all the songs and the hits and the fans of of those songs, but for our own edification yeah we, we we need to be creative you know and and if it's but that's what's got to make recording albums now such a joy because there's not the a and aor guy there's not the record you know it's just like we're gonna make it because we want to and yeah. it'll be the music that we want to hear right i mean it's yeah and 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 that's the thing we've been doing records together for so long that it's kind of like falling out of bed you know i think that was one of the things that kind of you know was was difficult for michael uh, at first, um, realizing that we could go in without formal arrangements done and without lyrics done, and have a mind in our mind's eye where things were going to go, and he had worked with us for so many years, no, knowing the, you know the the knowledge of of us being around each other and making records year after year after year. I mean, we yeah. probably made twelve records in between the last time we worked with Michael. So, um, and I th- think once he got the zeist of of what you know, how we could do this and how we're used to doing this, he got into it and it was a blast, you know, to be able yeah. to do it like that, you know. Well, he gave us a, a, a good little present by doing, once we did the basic tracks, by doing one song at a time. Right. And we knew what we were doing the next day. We got to cram for that like studying for exam. by writing lyrics at the house. Yeah. You know, and then we come in, here's the lyric sheet. Yay! <laughs> you know, yeah. so that was awesome. And, and you've got your next album title right there, Great White, Falling Out of Bed. Falling Out of Bed. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Falling Out of Bed. Right? That's a perfect sharks. title. Uh, I'm going to go to you here for this one because you, of course, worked on Appetite for Destruction back in the day or you were involved with the Mr. Brownstone remix and they announced the 30th anniversary deluxe box set that's going to cost, you know, two children and a car. Um, talk to me about working back then with Alan Niven and, and, and Mr. Brownstone and the mix and just that little bit of GNR sort of trivia for folks. Well, that whole thing stemmed out of the fact that there was a point where Mike Clink, the original producer on the record, after having been around them for five months, basically was, he was toast. He was done. You know, he did. It's like he just wanted to walk away from the project. I think he would, you know, five months around the boys at that time, probably had a lot to do with how hard you know that was dealing with them at that point. Um, so when they um, were getting ready to mix it, there was there was the songs were split up between Alan and myself and um, Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero. Yeah, so guys, by the way. so we got Brownstone. Rocket Queen, It's So Easy, and I don't think we got to a fourth one because at that by that time <clears throat> they had decided to go with Michael and Steve in New York. Um, but they were serviced with um, Jungle, Paradise City. So I think Zootout was kind of <laughs> pushing the, the... But it was a great experience, you know. Um, to, to mix that song and then I have uh, have the guys come in and, and, and kind of go yeah that's what we're supposed to that's what we sound like you know and that that whole thing it was really cool and and I just thought yeah okay you know it's 
you know, just a, a gig we didn't necessarily, you know, didn't get at the time, but um, Niven did put Brownstone on a 12-inch, uh, the B-side of a 12-inch single. And if you remember Ton Mastery from KNAC, yeah. Leather Nun, uh, she used to play our version over the records version on KNAC all the time. So that was a, that was a great compliment. Um, you know, I did a couple of TV shows for them. I uh, did an American Music Awards in the truck, you know, uh, the, the audio. So uh, all I remember Axel saying is, my friend at home said it sounded great. Thanks. <laughs> you know, so, but that's Axel, and, and that's that time, you know. Uh, and we did a show. You remember the show we did in New York? Yeah. Uh, for Ritz. MTV. The Ritz. Where the you Ritz. had we yeah. had a terrible flu. Yeah, I had a hundred and three temperature, so I just drank six Heinekens and it, it was fine. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about that Ritz show. <laughs> There's been so much lore and rumors about that Ritz show. It was a great white show, and GNR was supposed to open up, and then at no. the last minute they switched it. Like what? What? Because no, they weren't supposed to open up. Okay. we talked about it before that show. Niven, we talked about it with Niven, and he said it'd be best because there's a real huge buzz on this band right now. Right, it'll just. I know you guys have sold like four or five times as many records as them, but just open tonight. And we go, no problem. Yeah. We don't care. Yeah. I'll plug in now, early. Now, of course, they recorded their show. Is there a version of you guys? I mean, oh, yeah. It's all over the internet. All yeah, you have to do is pull YouTube, it up. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I got to go check We it actually out. do Since I've Been Loving You. It turned out pretty amazing. There you go. Um, just quickly on your guitar playing, how have you matured over the years, or how has your style sort of adapted or changed, or is it – or is it just sort of you've always just been Mark Kendall? The only thing I've done is strip things down a little right. bit more. I, d I don't have all the rack gear anymore. I, uh, you know, I kind of go straight to the amp uh, through a couple pedals, like a tuner, you know, okay. stuff like that. So I, I rely on my fingers, my volume knob on my guitar to kind of get what I need. You know what I mean? Right. I don't. I, I'm not confined to a pedal, pedal switcher, board or you know, yeah. with the uh, 3,042 presets. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's, you know, you'd hit the clean sound, and it's not really the right volume. You, you know, the volume that you would feel it should be. I like to have control over that to where I can just kind of pop my knobs, you know, get the clean sound, and turn it down to where I feel like it should be. Yeah, and, and that's just. You have more control that way. You know, kids are always asking, like, they want to know my exact knob, you know, the, my, my amps and the pedals. Like, there's something special. It and it, there isn't. It, it's like any amp I plug into, unless it's, it's like maybe the tubes are about ready to go or something. It, it, everything almost sounds the same to me, I, you know. Yeah. But everything comes down to the fingers. It, it, it really does. It really and that's is. with anybody. I, I'm not trying to th oh, throw down an ego trip or anything now. It just does sound like me. Well, that's that's a thing. I mean, you could take Eddie Van, Allen, Van Halen's rig, put it in Mark's hands, and it wouldn't sound like Eddie Van Halen. It sounded sound yeah, like Mark. Yeah, exactly. Like if if hands, Eddie Van Halen fingers. played through my rig, it would sound like Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's not because he's using special tunes. Yeah. And, you know. So, whatever. Uh, and I'll finish with this because... As you know, I'm Canadian, proudly so, right? Montreal Canadians, we always talk hockey. Mm -hmm. um, when are we going to see Great White in the Great White North? Well, we do have a show coming up on the 26th, I believe, in London, Ontario. Ontario. 
Well, get us, o- get us over there. Ontario, I'm sorry. It's only the capital of Canada, right. you know. But right. yeah, talk to your boys, boys. you know. Yeah. Get us up there. We'll get the promoters We won't talk. say no. Okay. We'll get you, we'll get you there. <laughs> a great time in, in Montreal and Quebec City, uh, you know, going and, and talking to people at Music Plus. You know, it was like... It was, it and was, trying to remember, you opened for... The first time I saw you, was it was Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. That was a great tour. That was a oh, lot yeah. of fun, the trash tour. Yeah, that was yeah. a long yeah. tour too. That was a great well, tour. Four months. <laughs> four well, months, yeah, something like that. Was, uh, in Canada, anyways, all the way from St. John's all the way to Vancouver. And yeah, it was so, right. But we did all those countries, Norway and all yeah. that, uh, and Europe. It was like an early January or something. It was early it was, January. It was freezing. Canada, it, was, it was freezing. It was November, December in Europe. Adi and I tried to go to McDonald's. It was three blocks from the hotel in Norway. We almost died. Or Helsinki, that's right. It was Helsinki. We didn't even go. We we didn't have earmuffs and all that. You know, it was like ridiculous. Bring it up to your people and and, and talk to our guy Sullivan and and get something in Montreal. You know, there's got to be a festival up there. Yes, there is. It's a great one, too. Always a pleasure. Oh, look at that. A rip shirt there. There you go. Yes. Yeah, buddy. Thank well, you, thank yeah. you. I just, oh, saw Lon, I just saw Lon Fred out in the hallway. Yeah. He's, I go, dude, we need some hats. He goes, oh, we're going to give them to you guys. I go, cool. Okay. I'll wear yeah. a shirt. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great to see you. You too. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> and thank you, Thanks, Mark. Mitch. Oh, look at Zoltan. Appreciate it, man. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to uh, Mark Kendall and Michael Lardy. Always, always a great pleasure to hang out with the guys of Great White. But let's get right back here with Alan. We were talking a little bit about Guns N' Roses, and of course Michael mentioned Guns N' Roses as well. They have this new box set, Appetite for Destruction, locked and loaded. It is massive, uh, seven, um, five-disc, seven LPs is what I'm trying to say. You were, of course, there, so... Talk to me about some of these albums and some of these remixes. And when you heard the announcement that this box set was coming out, was that like, ah, it's about time? Or were you like, oh, my, look at that? Well, I have to say that having been there at the time and having contributed in a small way to some of the uh, decisions of the moment, um, that perhaps I'm justified in having a, a little bit of a viewpoint on this. And the first thing I would say is I think it's really unfortunate for Guns N' Roses' brand, to use a term I'm not particularly fond of, uh, to be associated with a $999 box set. And I'll tell you for why. This is a band that rose to prominence on a blue-collar wave of response because that wave of people understood that GNR stood for the worth of every soul and that they were themselves, in their own ways, urchins from under the street. There was a genuine authenticity in the band attitude um, that was thoroughly anti-authoritarian and... I would have to say, would have despised such a box set back in the day. And I'm going to make one or two points here. First of all, when you mix a song, you mix it a certain way for a reason. And once that mix is completed, 
if you're fortunate to take it to somebody like George Marino at Sterling uh, in New York, who mastered, um, you're taking it to the master of mastering. No one was better than George Marino, and no one will ever be his equal. So it's mastered in a certain way. And we become used to people remastering things as an excuse to repackage. And from an artistic point of view, from a sonic point of view, I don't necessarily accept that. If the mixes are bad, remix it and remaster it. But the mixes were wonderful. What Thompson and Barbiero did was really special. So the mixes were good, the mastering was good, leave it alone. If you want another copy of Appetite for Destruction, go to a flea market, find a used copy from the 80s that's clean and buy it. That's in the spirit of the band. Now my next question is, who wants temporary tattoos? I mean, what is in this box set? Apart from old music that's been re-manipulated for no particular point of view, and all the other stuff that's in it, and who's going to buy it at $999? I, well, think, well, I think it's a really bad move all the way around. But I, I, will, be, I, will, I will sort of play devil's advocate and, 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 and say this uh, to be fair to the band. There is the deluxe version that's going to cost you an arm and a leg, as you just described, but there is a five-CD version without all the knickknacks, thank God, which is 200 bucks, and then there's a... a Two disc version, which is going to be selling for about twenty five bucks, which is some of the bonus tracks with with the actual album. So so they've done different configurations at different price points. And no, I'm aware. I'm I'm, I'm aware of that, Mitch. Okay. And, uh, okay. and and of, and of course, you would understand that that would be done. On the other hand, I think that it's reasonable to say that everybody is aware of the thousand dollar box set. And the message it sends. And that, I think, is really unfortunate to be associated with Guns N' Roses. And if I'm going to, you know, try to get to a positive, uh, would I have an alternative way of of suggesting, acknowledging appetite for destruction being um, in people's consciousness for 30 years? Damn right I would. I'd have reformed the original band for the Harlem gig, had them play AFD from top to bottom down, and released that. And to boost up the package, I'd have put in the marquee shows from 1987 that were recorded on the Rackmobile. And there you honor the past by being in the moment for the future. You know, and I'm I'm going to say this about about this and the Gene Simmons vault box set and, and. as a longtime fan of bands, they always say you should support your music, you should you should support your bands, and they've made it very difficult to support. I mean, I've I have followed Kiss and Gene Simmons since 1977-78, and whether I can afford his two thousand dollar box set or not, I, I'm not going to spend that kind of money on it. And it just seems to me that after all the loyalty and after going through all the trials and tribulations of the band going up and down, that they've made the music unattainable or undesirable and that to me as a music fan is terrible now the guns and roses box set i bought the 200 where i pre-ordered the 200 dollars version and i have to say i'm i'm not overly happy about that i mean i want the songs i want to get these sound city sessions and more and stuff just because i'm a completist but after you know staying with the band when the band wasn't the band it was just one guy and then one guy came back 
to say, hey, you know what? Why don't we give you some of this stuff as a gift out of loyalty? And I, and I don't mean a gift like they have to give us the music, but you know, here's a fifty dollar package where you get all these extra songs and sort of thanks for being there. The last. And it's too bad. It's it's too bad that bands have gotten to this point where they do that. That that said, though, I don't want to take away from the excitement of getting these songs in in one place. And but yeah, the price points uh, it really does sort of it, say. It, 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 it's sad to me because the clear message that I get is that those who are involved with putting out a package like that have lost touch with the comprehension and the understanding that rock and roll is fundamentally a blue collar and a working class medium. And they've forgotten that their fans really have to scuffle to get by every week. When we did Use Your Illusions, one of the the arguments I had with... uh, Axel over whether it should be a double album or two single albums was to persuade him that it was a, a weight on a big part of the fan base to have to untrouser for a double album, whereas they could buy one album one week and one album the next week. And he understood that at that time. But now he wants to sell old music for a thousand dollars. And I'm sorry, Mitch, you know, love them all to death. But that dog don't hunt for me. Yeah, let me ask you a question about that on a serious note. How involved do you think the band, you know, Duff, Slash, and Axel are? I mean, when a record company owns the rights, they can just say, hey, listen, folks, we're going to put this stuff out. Do, do they have a lot of, of say? I mean, do you think Axel or Slash or Duff could say, we don't want this to come out? or you're pro-? I mean, How much is falls on the band's back and how much is just on Universal's back? Well, I'm obviously talking from the disadvantage of not being in the room, and that has to be said up front. So I could right. be completely out to lunch. Because I'll, I'll put it from my but perspective, my... Just, just real quick, when, when, band, when, when bands go on tour and they don't play your city, fans will always, will, will right away say, well, Guns N' Roses isn't playing Ottawa. How they don't like us. And it's like, well, no, no, no. It's it's you, it's your promoters that need to step up. So are we unfairly saying this is the band's fault or... or well, we're, we're, we're okay. talking about two different issues. Right. Because in routing of a tour, um, the band and the, primarily the management of the band would be heavily involved. And you're dealing with things like building availability. I mean, is there a Stanley Cup? final game going on right. or you know there are there are lots of different things that, that come to pass because you're right. trying to and promoters and economically put something together and maybe the local promoter doesn't want to take a risk on the package and the pricing of it but what i would speculate is that i would think that axel micromanage this box because that is the nature of axel and that's the nature of how guns and roses works these days now and of course they had the greatest hits but um so let me let me turn this to the positive then. What are for here? I'm looking at this. We've got this the 1986 Sound Session, Sound City Sessions with songs like The Plague, which was previously unreleased, and New Work Tune, which was. What is that stuff? And why is the band in the in the studio recording Jumping Jack Flash? Was that just them jamming and sort of tuning up the instruments and getting ready to to, to record the GNR stuff, or was there like, hey, you guys need some covers? And why don't we try Jumping Jack Flash? Well, fundamentally, those were the uh, initial recordings done with Manny Charlton that were basically to function as 
the demos for the band to give an idea of the nature of the band, the nature of the material, uh, the the sonic approach. Um, so that's where they come from. I mean, Tom Zutout gave me a tape of that stuff back in 86 for me to sit down and go and evaluate. Um, and I got to admit, occasionally it's kind of fun to pull out my copy of that and, and play it and, and, and smile. And send it to Mitch. Uh, and send it to Mitch. Um, <laughs> I'll give you my you email know, but, after. No, no but you uh, know, it, 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 it certainly shows that the band had a a more obvious and aggressive punk edge to them um, before we got to recording Appetite for Destruction. Um, and you can also see a tremendous step that Axel takes from the demos to Appetite. Uh, and Curly too, right. Slash. I mean, his, his his playing on the demo is while while good and promising, um, became something else in the process of recording Appetite to Destruction. And I think you have to tip your your hat to Mike Klink there, uh, who had worked with the likes of Michael Schenker before, in in that Mike really, really brought out what Slash had, the promise that Slash had. I think he did a wonderful job with Slash. Yeah, and of course, we, we've said it uh, before on, on these talk-ups that in 2017, 18, 16, Slash, I think, is, be- is still playing better than he's ever played before. There's there's a purity, yes. I think. Yeah. Y- yes, yeah. Um, but, as, but as far as the formation of the, of the box set, I'll guarantee you that it was micromanaged by Axel, and it just just seems to me that perhaps he's lost touch a little bit from where he came from and who his following really is and really was. Well, like I said, I, I did I did pre order the two hundred dollar version, so I I am I am somewhat uh excited to get this. But talk to me a little bit quickly about these different versions of your crazy why an acoustic version and an electric version? How did we say, okay, this one gets on to Appetite? No. And, of course, the start of uh, November Rain, it was essentially a four-minute song with you know a little bit of piano and acoustic version. Then it grew into this whoop, big, massive thing. Um, why weren't those songs, uh, or in fact, why wasn't November Rain ready for the big time on Appetite for Destruction? November Rain was evolving in Axel's mind, and there was a lot of thought about whether or not it should be included on Appetite. And to Tom Zutout and myself, it felt like it wasn't quite in the vein of the rest of the album. And one of the things that I'd learned over time was that um, it's a good thing to have quality in the larder. when you put out a first album by a band, they've had a long time to formulate that material. They go out, they tour, they come back, they're exhausted. Record company turns around and says, all right, now we want another record straight away. And you have people who are probably emotionally and psychologically exhausted, and they're suddenly having to form new material for a follow-up record. And hence we have the sophomore curse of all those bands that had less than scintillating second albums um what right. what's the boy from the pretty boy from new jersey called bon jovi there's John. an example 
yeah, his second album was done under those circumstances. So Tom and I were very happy to go, you know what, November Rain, we're holding for a second album. Um, this track, we're going to hold for a second album. That track, we're going to hold for a second album. We're going to have something in the larder that we've got as a little bit of a backbone to build on um, if we have to turn around and make a second album really quickly. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but ironically, I think the three tracks that we held off Appetite ended up being the three singles off Use Your Illusions. But there again, I always think that Dustin Bones should have been a single. Dustin Bones should have been a single. What a great song. And, and we've had this discussion many times, too. I th- I've always said Use Your Illusions should have been one great album and not two, you know, watered-down ones. But hey, what, what, what are you going to do? Um, I was talking with... And I, oh, I'm forgetting who it was, but I did an interview not too long ago, and we were talking about Appetite for Destruction, and the person said to me, well, you know what, Anything Goes should have not gone on the album. It might have been, might have been Steve Thompson I was doing the interview with, and he says, oh, Reckless Life should have been on it. Uh, it wasn't. Was that also, we'll keep it for later, or it just didn't fit the, 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 the spirit of Appetite? What, what, was, what was wrong with Reckless Life when it was time to come up with a track listing for AFD? Um, I don't know if it's as simple as looking at it and going, you know, we're covering this feel and vibe in other ways and places on the record. And it's maybe too overt a statement that the rest of the songs say it's a reckless life without saying it's a reckless life. Um, you know, it's like the guy goes up to the microphone and sings, I'm a big bad boy. And it's, you, you, and you're going, right, you're standing over the guitar around your neck. Big bad boys come into the room with an AK-47. You know, that's a big bad boy. You're just a guitar player. Um, some, sometimes some rock and roll statements are just too overt. Yeah, it, it, too easy. And, of course, uh, on this box set, uh, which is interesting to me, they, they've thrown the material from Lies on here. Uh, but they left off one song, One in a Million. So just a quick comment on that. Uh, musically, I like One in a Million. Lyrically, uh, not a fan. Could they, should they have released it and maybe altered the lyrics? Or was it better to leave it off? Or should they have put it on and said, this is the statement we made? And we, I mean, what should I, what do they do with One in a Million? Uh, I think they look at it as a no-win situation, that had they re-released it, um, it would have picked the scab off the wound and made a lot of people unhappy. Um, By not releasing it, it throws into question whether or not Axel was being gratuitous when he wrote it. But I'll tell you, the very first time I heard that song was when Axel asked me to come into his bedroom and he picked up a guitar and he sat on the bed and he played this song. There were just the two of us in the room and he played me this song and he looked at me and he said, well, what do you think? And all the time while he was playing it, and I was listening carefully to what he was saying, obviously, he shapeshifted and morphed into an incredibly vulnerable individual. And in that moment... I took what he was doing as a genuine expression and representation of his state of mind at the moment when those perceptions were formed 
when he was hitchhiking into Sodom and Gomorrah, Los Angeles. And I thought he was being artistic and sincere, and I knew it would be difficult, but I didn't think he was being gratuitous, not for a moment. I thought he was being genuinely, if difficultly, artistic. Now, I could have been wrong, because, you know, he's out running around in a Manson t-shirt a, a year or so after I'm not working with him. So what do I know? Maybe he's a sociopath, and I didn't get it. Right. And... and it's it's such a shame because it it's such a good song musically and I, and I'll, you know I just wish that they they could have done something different lyrically because I, I would love to go to a Guns N' Roses show in 2018 and have them pull out one in a million because it it's it's a monster musically but they can't I mean they just can't nope. you, no. you can't you can't grow into to Spain or into France or into Germany or any, anywhere quite frankly. Um, and pull out that song. So, boy, you know, and there's, a, and there's another perspective here too, in that Axel had to get that by Slash, and Slash could have also turned around and said, "There's no way." But I think Slash saw it in a similar way as I did. He said, "Well, that's Axel, and that's what he thought at the time, and he's being honest about who he was." And you know, when you're being, when you're a genuine artist, Mitch, um, genuine artists should reveal a fact that they can also be less than perfect people. That's true. With all the gatekeepers back then, from record company execs to A and R guys to this, and are, are you surprised that it actually ever got released the first time? Are, were you surprised that no gatekeeper along the way said, "Oh no, 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 no." No, 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 no. I mean, <laughs> I, I was. Uh, yes and no. Um, they were selling an image. Did, they were selling a. No, no. What, what what did surprise me was that nobody protested. Um, comment was made and said, "Well, this is an interesting song," but nobody said, "You know, you guys should really think about this." Or we don't want to we don't want to deal with this at Geffen. Um, and I think part of that was... Was it just marketing because controversy sells? No, it wasn't just marketing. It was the fact that Axel had a very strong personality. Uh, his manager had a very strong personality. And people usually got out of our way when we said we were going to do something and didn't question it. Because we were getting results, too. Oh, undeniably. I mean, here we are, you know, what is it? 30, 30, 31 years later, and we're still talking about this album, and it's going to be re-released, and, and and people are excited, and there's all. I mean, you know, you know it's, it's seminal. People people love it, and and you know, I get it. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you did good, as we say in this part of the world. Um, speaking of spe speaking of doing good. This is probably the longest talk-up for, for a guest, but let's get quickly over to Michael James Jackson. He, of course, produced the Creatures of the Night album, and, of course, fans talk to this day of the great drum sound, and he came back and did Lick It Up. He had also done those four songs on the Kiss Killers album. Uh, folks, uh, checking in, the interview is in two parts, not because of any technical glitch or anything like that. We did 20 minutes, and then there was a break taken to get some water and some coffee and all this and all that, and then we came back. So you're going to get Michael James Jackson in 
two separate parts. But uh, without further ado, here is famed KISS producer Michael James Jackson. We are speaking with producer Michael James Jackson. Of course, KISS fans will know him from Creatures of the Night and Lick It Up. But his career goes much, much further back, including uh, working on the early Paul Williams albums, Pablo Cruz, um, and many more. Mimi Farina, Red Rider, which is great for us Canadians. An absolute pleasure to talk to you today, Michael. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Yeah. Now, I have been trying, like many of uh, the KISS sites and many other reporters, to get an interview with you for many years. And you have steadfastly, um, I don't want to say refused, but you are very much concerned about privacy and being a private person. And so talk to me about sort of coming out these days and and doing the rounds and talking to, to different media outlets and just sort of saying, hey, you know what? Yeah, okay, I'm here. And and yes, I did make some great albums. Um, you know, my focus was always the work and the relationship with the artist and trying to actually build something together. And so very often there have been plenty of requests over the years for interviews and so forth. <coughs> Excuse me. And I usually declined because I was not particularly interested in self-promoting and... and um, the experiences that we had making these records was very special, and I just was focused on uh, whatever was coming next. But I didn't really spend hardly any, hardly any time at all in terms of doing interviews or discussing what happened with the records until recently. And um, I had an interesting experience. I went on the Kiss Cruise as a panelist. And uh, it was the first time that I really had this incredible experience of being with all the fans. And the fans were so impacted by these records and were so complimentary towards me that I just realized that very quickly you become embraced by that. And and you really realize how deeply meaningful the work that you did was. It really had impact on everybody. And... um, you know, when you're sitting in a recording studio, you're not thinking about that. You're thinking about getting a great take or is the arrangement good enough or is the sound good enough in certain areas. But you don't really think about the fans. You think about what you're doing and what you're making and you want to be moved by it yourself. And you, I always really say this, you wind up operating on a conceit. And the conceit is, is that if it moves me, I'm, I'm going to gamble that it's going to move you too. And that was really the focus. And so um, you're absolutely right. I declined almost all the interviews that I was that were requested. And um, but I'm glad talking about it now because the fans really made me realize how meaningful it was to them, and that had great impact on me. Really humbled me. Yeah, and and you, you know. Apart from the Kiss albums, uh, you did an album with L.A. Guns called Hollywood Vampires, which personally touched me. I think it's a great album. So, so we'll get to all of those. But how, where do we get started? I mean, you start off with Paul Williams, or, or well, he's one of the early ones. Um, uh, Pablo Cruz. Music is the music that you're doing in the '70s is a lot softer. So you sort of have these two eras of '70s, sort of a softer rock moving into the. Creatures of the Night, Lick It Up, Armored Saint period. Where did mm-hmm. we get started? How did you sort of end up 
being a producer? What was sort of the first step? Was there school involved? Was it just I knew a buddy? Um, where'd you get your start? I think that uh, getting into the world of music today is very different than it was in the early 70s. In the early 70s, it was like the Wild West. So, um, you know, I was interested in being a writer. So I was going around looking for jobs, carrying the first three chapters of a novel I was working on and a handful of poetry. And I loved music, and music was a bit, really a big part of my life, and I played some flamenco guitar, but my focus was not I wanted a job in the music business. I just wanted a job. And so I was quite young. I think I was 23, 24, and I took a job with Electra as a stock boy. And I had no idea what I was really getting into. And the first day that I showed up for work, there was a courtyard at Electra Records that you had to go through to reach the front door. And as I came into this courtyard on my first day, I noticed under the bushes, it appeared that there was a dead body. And I just got really frightened because I've never seen anybody dead before. And I ran into the building and I said to the woman, I said, you know, you've got to call the police. There's somebody outside and they're dead. Clearly, it was a homeless person, and it rained over the course of that previous night, so he was spattered with mud and just looked like he was gone. There was a, a bottle of Jack Daniels that was empty a few feet away. It just looked like a bad story. And she said, no, you just sit down and calm down. I said, no, he doesn't understand. Somebody is dead outside. And she said, that's Mr. Morrison. He had a difficult night in the studio last night. And when that happens and we find him like this, we just leave him alone. And I said, excuse me? She said, that's Jim Morrison. And so as she said that, the bushes through the window, you could see they started to sh to shake and shimmer. And as this zombie-like person stood up and brushed himself off and staggered towards Los Angeles Boulevard to go up to Duke's where I'm sure he was having breakfast. That was my introduction into the world of the music business. Um, but I became, once I was there, I became fascinated with the studio and fascinated with the engineers in particular who, who operated the gear and were very generous about answering questions when asked, how, how do you do this? And is that a better sound than this sound? And what kind of microphone? I mean, I became so seduced by it. It, it really took me in, and once it did, I was kind of destined to stay in the business. So I stayed at Electra for about a year, and by that time I had become kind of opinionated about things. You develop opinions about what's good, what affects you, what doesn't. And I got hired at A&M Records to administrate the A&R department. And I probably got hired because I had horn rim glasses and short hair and uh, didn't look like I did drugs and looked pretty safe. Um, but that was my next job. And I administrated the recording costs of the company each week. I learned about that. I didn't know anything when I got there, but for some reason they had some belief in me and they taught me. And then I was auditioning three, four, five people a day. And after a while, I kind of thought, well, I have an opinion about this. Maybe I should produce a record. So they gave me the opportunity to produce Mimi Farina and Tom Jans, the folk duo. 
and that was the first record that I produced, which I can't honestly really say that I produced. I survived because um, I went into it thinking that I had opinions, and I came out of it realizing that it was a lot different looking out the window in my little office having opinions about something than it was being in the studio when a, a group of incredible musicians walk in the control room and look at you and say, what do you think? Because I didn't know what I thought. Um, but I learned. And I had some people who were wonderful in terms of being mentors. And uh, step by step, I learned. So once I did that record, then there was the first Paul Williams record. Yeah. And the idea that they had at the time was to use Richard Perry, who would tend most likely to do very big productions of these great songs. And I went to Chuck Kay, who was in charge at the time of A&R, and I said, you know, it's just a personal opinion, but these songs are so incredibly emotional and powerful. I would think they should be recorded in a very personal way and not with some big orchestral event going on behind it, but it should be should really have a personality to it because that's who Paul is and he was so vulnerable when he wrote these songs. And um, uh, they came back and said, you know, you have a good line on this. Do you want to try and cut a couple tracks and we'll see how it goes? So I booked an incredible group of musicians and we went and, and cut a couple tracks with the direction that, that I originally suggested and everybody seemed pretty pleased and we just kept going. And that was the time, not the first record that I did. The first record I did, like I said, I survived. But the second record, the first Paul Williams record, was the first time that I kind of felt brave enough to actually have some ideas and see if they worked. And fortunately, enough of them did that uh, we kept going. And I, I did another two records with him after that. Yeah. Now, and we look at the discography, including Wayne Berry, Patty Dahlstrom, uh, Howie well. Moon, right? I mean, th th these are, uh, they're, they're, they're not heavy metal. Let's put it that way. Uh, no. Right? Was heavy metal or was harder rock like Creatures of the Night and the Armored Saint more of what you liked? Or was this more of your thing and you eventually learned to like the harder stuff to me? Like, musically, where did you sort of find yourself? Because you look at, at the 70s, and, and I said it before, it's a lot of the softer side of, of rock, Great albums, great artists. Where did that sort of, where did you sort of situate yourself musically? What was sort of your bands that you would put on in the car or, or at home on the stereo? I tended towards melodic music and and rock and roll, but not really hard rock and roll. So you're quite right. Um, I love good music, and I tried to to really produce. A, a certain degree of quality with whatever it was that I was working on. But you're right. It wasn't really hard rock and roll. So when Kiss showed up, uh, it seems like an odd match. And in truth, it really was an odd match. But I, I, the qualities that I brought to the experience probably were initially that I had some reputation as being a song-oriented guy. And after the elder, um, they needed that. I said, I think that they need they needed that. And there there was a meeting that I had with Gene, 
where Gene said, well, come over and I'll play you some songs. And he had played me like 42 songs. And and at the end of it, I said, you know, look, you don't have to do this with me. It's okay. But if you want to, you know, I'm going to bring you to California and put you with other writers uh, because you've got three songs here. And one's a great chorus and we can build something else around that chorus. And another one is a great verse, but needs a chorus. And, and, uh, he, you know, I'm not sure you'd have to ask Gene why he thought that that was a good idea, but he, he and Paul both, it, it was kind of a fit. It may have seemed unnatural if you always thought that you're only going to hire somebody to produce a hard rock record who's got dyed black hair and who is going to come in with a lot of attitude. That wasn't me. I, I viewed it like I viewed any record at all. How do we get the best possible songs? How do we create an overall feeling within this particular album and this project that conveys something special about the identity of the artist? And um, KISS was a very known entity. But after The Elder, it appeared, it seemed like people were kind of confused. And um, uh, uh, so, let, me, let me tell you, we were. <laughs> we, I was. You know. Right. Um, so I w- I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. So I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I just, I, I remember specifically, you know, uh, going into a record store to buy The Elder. It was the first record that my dad ever bought for me because my mom would always buy the stuff for me and i remember getting home from this long trip from downtown montreal to where we lived about 45 minutes putting it on and going what what is that and that right. what is that feeling has never left me all these years later mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that's great it's great when 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 gene brings you 42 songs and you tell him that three of them are workable what sort of convinced him to stay? Why does he not say to, hey, who are you to tell me that, you know, I don't have 42 fabulous songs here? Um, I think in the beginning, they were all saying, who are you? Because I was not your typical guy for this this particular genre. Um, but perhaps, and I can't speak for Gene or anybody else, but perhaps... Um, something that I was saying made some sense and resonated because one thing was very clear. I was very focused on the fact, look, if you want to do this, what I'm interested in doing is building it, really building a great record that's going to reinforce the identity of the band and the feel of the band. And um, this is how I would go about it. And that may not be what you are interested in doing. That's okay. But this is how I know to go about it and all best efforts. That's the bottom line always, you know, you, you, you've got studio time at seven o'clock at night. Everybody shows up on time. You think they're going to walk in and play it just the way that they played it in rehearsal. It's going to feel as great as it did. And the band plays the track down and it doesn't feel like much of anything. So you're starting from scratch. It's like the mysteriousness of recording. You know, you can think that you've got everything planned out and how it's going to work when somebody shows up and says, this is what we're going to do. This is the album we're going to make. And it's going to be huge. And people are going to love you for doing this. I don't really operate like that because I think that everything is um, a piece of work that's always in progress until it's finished. And it's hardly ever finished when you think it is. 
So what did Gene think about my saying that? You know, I have no idea. But I, I, I do know that... Sorry about the noise. I, I do know that um, uh, Creatures was a complicated record and a complicated experience for a lot of reasons because it seemed like th- this record was going to define or not what was coming next for the band and for the fans. And with the fans actually you know, hang in there if somehow something different didn't take place. You know, there there was a sense of emergency, not not emergency, a sense of urgency about getting it right and doing something that Gene and Paul truly felt was really representative of them. So... Oh, and and um, I, I certainly believe that because uh, you look as a fan that they do Dynasty with a disco song. They do Unmasked, which is more pop. I happen to like that record. Elder comes out, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. I so, think people were, were, it was very ambitious, you know, and I mean, Bob Ezrin's a friend of mine. I think he's an incredible producer. Um, for some reason, that record was whatever it was at the time for whatever reasons. And um, uh, it created kind of a plateau where the band had to really make a decision, you know, what they were going to do and who they wanted to actually be and reinforce what image. So I'm very grateful. I'll tell you, when I was on the cruise, so many people came up and talked to me about creatures and posed questions about creatures. And it was so rewarding. (laughs) <laughs> and so humbling, as I said. So, well, I, um, I agree. You know, whenever anybody asks me what my top three Kiss albums are, uh, Creatures is always number two. You know, it's always right in there. There's the, well, it's Creatures, Revenge, and the very first one because that's where it all started. And so, it's sort of they'll they'll change positions depending on when you ask me the question. But it's it's always top three for me. Um, just before I get into Creatures, because I want to spend some time on Creatures and really delve in and, and get to the minutia of the whole thing. 79, uh, you hook up with Red Rider and Canadian artist Tom Cochran for Don't Fight It. Then after that, mm-hmm. 81, as far as Siam or Siam, uh, that album, uh, 37 years ago, uh, has their sort of biggest hit, Lunatic Fringe, uh, mm-hmm. certainly a song that Americans would, would know. Talk to me about how you got in contact with Red Rider and working with Tom Cochran because it was their debut album, you had worked with all these people before. You had a pedigree. People knew that you that what you could do. How did sort of a, for the lack of a better word, a rookie band get Michael James Jackson on board for their debut and then the follow-up as far as see him? Um, Capitol Records flew me to Toronto. I'd heard some tapes. And I thought that there was a lot of potential there. And I talked on the phone with with Tom Cochran, and we we had the beginning of a good rapport. So as I recall, and I think I've got this right, because like you said, it was a long time ago, um, I flew to Toronto and met with them and, and came away with the feeling that it would be a fun project and they were talented, and he had something unique in particular, like as a writer. So... Uh, I mean, probably one of the better writers you've ever met, right? I mean, Tom, you know, again, in the States, maybe in Europe, people have forgotten, but he's still going strong in Canada. And 
right? I mean, the, the album's coming up to 40 years old, Don't Fight It. It's, it's 40th anniversary mm-hmm. next year. Quite amazing. Yeah. Life is a, high, Life is a Highway was a great song. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that he's always been a really, really talented guy. And I really enjoyed working with him. And it was great because it was the beginning. And beginnings are wonderful because they aren't necessarily already defined. So while you start going down one particular path, you suddenly say, you know, we should be going down this other path. It's better. And um, so I like beginnings, by the way. Yeah. And um, that's what that record was really about. Yeah, and it, it was extremely well-received, uh, which was wonderful. Yeah, you had a chance to, to, to sort of help shape and define who Red Rider and eventually what Tom would be. Now, now let, let, let's get back to Kiss here. Cause, and I just had to get that in there because Canadian, Canadiana was, was important. But uh, they, they released an album called Kiss Killers, which is a greatest hits for and for some reason only released in foreign markets, not North America, at least not at first. The four songs that you were involved with, uh, Down on Your Knees, I'm a Legend Tonight, and all that. Were they part of those songs that were going to be on Creatures of the Night? And they said, listen, we'll just, we just need to put something out. What is sort of the genesis of those songs and you working on that? Was it, okay, we're doing Creatures, but let's just do this first before we, I mean, how did that get started? Uh, Killers is a compilation record with the additional four tracks. So we had to get that job out of the way and do the four tracks because there was a an obligation, excuse me, to get that record released first, uh, which it was. So we did those four tracks. Creatures obviously was a separate record, uh, and we started Creatures right away. And um, uh, did the drums at record one in uh, Studio City and so on and so forth. But by the time that we got done with Kiss Killers, um, it was clear that coming up was Creatures, and Creatures was a big proposition. Like I said, it was a complicated experience because there was a lot riding on Creatures. Creatures needed to stand out and speak for the band, um, which I think it really did. So that was the sequence of events. Right. Um, if that's helpful. Yes, I don't know. A- absolutely. So so let's get into to Creatures of the Night. Do you recall, um, you, you know, you look at some of the songwriters, Adam Mitchell, who's a great friend of yours, uh, but we have another, right. we have a rookie Canadian in there, Brian Adams and Jim Valance. Now this is before Brian Adams is the Brian Adams that we know today. Correct. Where, where did those... Um, where did, where did those connections come from? So how did Brian and stuff, is it because you had that Canadian connection with, with Toronto and Red Rider and the Canadian scene and, and, and Adam uh, Mitchell? How does Brian get songs submitted to Creatures and gets two of them placed? One of the, uh, one of the ideas at the time was I had said and told Gene and Paul that I suggested very strongly that they'd be open to writing with some other people and seeing what would take place if we did that. And one of the writers that I suggested was, was Brian and Valance. And um, 
and Adam Mitchell. Um, Gene wanted to write with with Michael Jap. Um, there's a number of other people that were involved, but yeah. uh, that was how that came about. And yes, Adam Mitchell is a very old friend of mine, and I usually brought Adam into situations where we needed some writing help. So Adam helped with a with a band called Hurricane that I also produced. Yeah, Slave to the Throne. <laughs> now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And there you have it, folks, the first part of my interview with famed producer Michael James Jackson. We will get right back to part two in just a little bit. But first, it is guitarist extraordinaire Joe Satriani. He will be in Montreal on May 25th at the M. Tellus. A few years back, he recorded a live DVD at the same venue, though back then it was called The Metropolis. And so, without further ado, here is the one, the only, guitarist extraordinaire that is right, guitarist extraordinaire, Joe Satriani. We are speaking with guitarist Joe Satriani. The new album is What Happens Next. And of course, he is coming to Montreal on May 25th at the M. Tellus, formerly known as the Metropolis, where Joe, in fact, recorded his saturated Live in Montreal DVD back in 2012. Joe, absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. I have been a fan for years from from alien all the way to the chicken foot stuff just just terrific terrific stuff um pleasure to talk to you oh great thank you thanks it's, it's good to talk to you so um well, let, let me just start then with with this connection to montreal because it is a city that has embraced you and it's a city that you have embraced uh, including having done the live dvd here talk to me a little bit about this city and what it means to you to play here, and how do the fans react to you when you do come? Oh, we've always had, uh, I think, a really special relationship with the fans there, and um, certainly returning to what I always think of as the Metropolis um, uh, is is special because of the memories, um, you know, that I that uh, that we built there, uh, playing there uh, quite a few times. Um, I think. You know, when you um, when you get to return to a place uh, at very um, important moments of your career, and you get to sort of um, reconnect with those fans, um, it 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 never leaves you. It it sort of um, those memories sort of uh, gain importance in your artistic life as time goes on. Um, it's almost like you know somebody saying every ten years. I'm going to go to the Gaudi Familia in Barcelona. I'm going to walk to the top of the church, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's almost, it's, you know, it's like a pilgrimage in a way, an artistic pilgrimage. Um, so I, I'm very excited that we get to go back uh, to a place where we've had such great memories playing for amazing audiences. And um, we, we get to create some new memories that will even strengthen uh, this sort of... Uh, Pilgrimage, pilgrimage at, right. as it is, you know. Um, but yeah, and you, you mentioned uh, doing the, the saturated uh, video. Um, I mean, we've tried all sorts of stuff there, which I think is part of the charm is that each time that we've returned, we've tried something new. We've done something dangerous, whether it's, you know, new songs or trying to do something in 3D, Um you know, and and I think the audience there has always been with us. They've always appreciated the fact that we show up and we 
try to do something new and and exciting for them. Yeah. So so let's let, that brings us to the the new album. What happens next? You you have been of course quoted as saying you wanted to do something completely different. So so take it from my sort of naive perspective. What what does that mean to do something completely different when you're talking about an instrumental music and and, and instrumental albums? What is sort of the inspiration? What was the need to do something different? Well, you know the um, the it, the story behind what happens next is really um, the uh, it, it really makes it gets into perspective if you understand what came before it, and what came before it was um, a very ambitious record called Shockwave Supernova, which was. Um, uh, an album with a narrative that was about me confronting what I felt was a kind of uh, persona or alter ego that had right. sort of grown with me to epic proportions, you know, over a 30-year-plus career, at least in front of people, and then going back to when I was just a young kid at 14 doing my very first gigs. And uh, I kind of ramped it up and turned it into a slightly dramatic sci-fi kind of theme so that I could figure out how the real Joe and this, uh, this persona guy that the rest of the world sees who I called shockwave supernova, uh, uh, and how they battle it out for supremacy. And I had to figure out how to do this musically without lyrics and to make the album, you know, enjoyable without knowing that there was a narrative, but at the same time to use the narrative as a kind of internal production tool. So then we go out on tour. The record's very successful and the tour's successful. And I realize as I'm out there that I've kind of prophesized uh, the demise of part of what I've been doing all the time. Because I wrote the last song on the record is Goodbye Supernova. So I'm, I've written in the fact that I'm killing off this guy that I've depended on uh, my whole career to get me in front of people which is something I'm not really inclined to do because I'm kind of a, a shy person in general. And, and, you know, every night before I step on stage, I, I'm in disbelief that I've actually got a job where I have to get in front of people, you know? Uh, but I take two steps on stage and all of a sudden I'm this other Joe, you know? Um, yeah, so I, I saw an interview. Come, I was going to say, I sorry, saw this I interview. Mean, we, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, just, I'm I, saying that as we come to the end of that that cycle of touring, uh, I brought my son out to do some background video footage. Um, we thought we were going to do a live DVD. It turned into this documentary because he noticed this artistic turmoil I was going through as I was trying to figure out how to end this cycle with Shockwave Supernova and how to do something brand new. And I kept asking myself, what, what am I going to do next? What happens next? You know? And, uh, so that turned into the documentary beyond the supernova and, um, which was on the, the, uh, Mill Valley film festival last October. It's, it's been playing on access TV, um, here in the U S and, um, it'll be available for streaming on, uh, Kello, um, Quello, excuse me, um, probably in, in a couple of weeks. Um, so we're real happy that that got out there, but that is part of, I know this is the longest explanation ever, but no, it's great. that's part of what led me to finally say, okay, I, you know, if I'm going to do something brand new, I have to put myself 
in a different place with different people and I have to drop what I've been writing about the last couple of records at least. So that meant no sci-fi, write just about human uh, emotions, um, hopes and dreams. It, it, it has to be from the real Joe, not from the Shockwave character. And uh, I looked to first to, to Chad because we had done a chicken foot, uh, a run of chicken foot shows um, right sort of like halfway between that shockwave tour. Um, and it, it stayed with me just how much fun it was rocking out with Chad. And, and I thought this is, this feels like I'm 14 years old and I'm playing in the high school gym. It's, it reflects my first and true loves of music, um, rock and soul and blues. And, uh, and, and it's, and it's more um, essential. It's 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 you know spiritual, but it's super visceral at the same time. There's there's nothing really fancy about it, but it's uh, it's it's totally solid, and it feels so natural. So I got it in my head to ask him first, and I and I had the idea that if I paired him up with bassist Glenn Hughes, that he'd be more inclined to say yes. And and you know, luckily for him. Uh, and me and Glenn that, that, you know, his first inclination was just to say yes right away. And, and, uh, or, you know, we had plans to record this record. So once that happened, then, you know, directly answering your question, I knew exactly what I wanted to write. I wanted to write songs that were all about being human, about my experience. And, uh, I sort of pushed the aliens aside for a while. <laughs> of course, working with Glenn uh, obviously has to be a great thing. He, he, of course, from the Deep Purple Clan. What's it like working with Glenn and Chad in, in terms of um, do you want to move forward as a sort of a super group kind of thing, or is it just a one-time come and guest on my album? Yeah, I thought that the only um – the, the only way to really proceed with something like that was just to think about the album. I knew that, like, schedule-wise, I only had Chad for seven days, and I had Glenn for about eight. Everybody was busy. Chad had to play with the Chili Peppers, and Glenn was just finishing up with Black Country Communion, and he had his own solo gigs lined up. So, um, you know, I mean, I was not going to even, you know... Uh, broach that subject, you know, like, hey, let's go on the road for two years, you know. Everybody already had a gig. They were doing this uh, purely for art, rock and roll, you know, and fun uh, to see what would happen. Um, you know, ch even though Chad and I had recorded two albums together, we never did any instrumental stuff, and Glenn had never done an instrumental record. I mean, no one had ever hired him to do uh, a record where he didn't sing. I mean, it's, I know it's a double negative, but right. you know what I mean? Right, because, <laughs> no, because he's the voice, oh, right? Yes, he's the voice, you know. So he kept saying, you sure you don't want me to sing something? I said, yeah, I know it's crazy. I just want you to play bass. So, But, you know, they connected so well together and they brought so much energy and um, natural groove to every song. It was exactly what... Uh, I thought was going to happen. I just, I knew from my experience with Chad that he brings it every beat of every song. He just can't help himself. He just, he, he just puts all of his heart and soul into everything that he plays. 
and and he makes sure that it sounds great too. You know what I mean? He's he's not just a technician. Um, and then he spreads that energy around the studio. So, and we were in a kind of a small to medium sized studio. Sunset Sound in Los Angeles is is not like um, Skywalker Ranch, you know, up here in Northern California. It is a small, tight, legendary, you know, all purpose uh, rock and roll studio in L.A. And um, they had recorded there before. It was new for me, so um, it, I think it added uh, a good amount of uh, energy to the proceedings because I was, you know, uh, I wasn't at home recording like I've done most of the time. I was in, uh, I was visiting, you know, a different city and I had to to drive to this studio I'd never been to before. And uh, I had my work cut out for me and I knew that I had a tight schedule. Um, but they, they, uh, they brought so much um, of themselves um and sort of surrendered all they had, all the talent that they had every single day. It was just so exciting. At the end of the, like the eight days, it was, I was exhausted just from, you know, being swept up in, in all that power, that artistic energy that they were uh, filling the room with. Um, it was really exciting. It was great. And, and, you know, Glenn, he's just a hundred percent musical. Uh, he, he, his whole body is mind and soul is just you know dedicated to musical expression it's it's remarkable to see it's freaky to stand next to him and play when you're recording because you just see him go for it every single take um it was really inspiring oh yeah glenn is fantastic so so i have two questions that lead from this because obviously you do chicken foot with chad but you did spend some time in deep purple so i just want to go back to the, the the early 90s and and that experience coming in for Richie Blackmore, uh, being, of course, younger, more more of a rookie than you are now, what was that experience like? And, and was it satisfying? Did, were you able to sort of be Richie for a while or be the guy? Or was it sort of an uncomfortable situation where you're like, oh, boy, OK, what do I talk to me a little bit about that experience and what it was like for you? Yeah, that was, you know, you uh you hit on some things that that are very perceptive. Uh, I, number one, I did feel a bit like a rookie. You know, I um, I was just a couple of years into the sort of accidental career as an instrumentalist, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, I get this call to replace a legend, and I knew you couldn't do it. I mean, you can't replace somebody like Richie Blackmore. So I kind of knew it was going to be a thankless job from the fans' point of view. <laughs> who had already bought tickets, you know, to the shows. Um, uh, and then uh, th- there wasn't un- a level of uncomfortableness, but I think it was all in my head. Um, I think anybody who walks out on stage knowing that they're not the guy that the audience knows and loves, that there's a replacement, they've got a little mental game they've got to play every night they're on stage. They have to kind of try not to think like the audience, but I couldn't help it. I was such a big fan of Deep Purple and such a big fan of Richie Blackmore that there was a lot of sort of internal um, uh, battles going on where every time I go to play Smoke on the Water, I would just hear every single note in detail that Richie played. And I kept thinking, why play it any different? That's perfect. 
But of course, the guys in the band really wanted me to be Joe. You know, they just kept saying, yeah, do whatever you want, Joe. We'd love to hear, you know, your style over this. Forget about Richie. And it was impossible for me because I grew up listening and trying to imitate Richie Blackmore uh, as any young kid my age would growing up when I did. Um, So the experience was exhilarating. It was, you know, super fun because I was, you know, uh, so excited to play with a legendary band, still mildly starstruck, even though I, I got to know these guys very well. But, you know, there were those nights where, you know, I'd be trading solos with John Lord and I just couldn't believe it was happening to me. And I, I always kind of felt like I'm, I'm up here on stage celebrating, uh, playing with Deep Purple as if I was picked out of the audience. So that, that's how I was able to sort of mentally get over the fact that I wasn't Richie Blackmore, <laughs> that I was this, uh, you know, Italian American kid from Long Island that somehow wound up on stage with this iconic British band, you know, and, um, I thought, well, I'll just walk on stage every night and think I'm going to, I'm going to celebrate with the audience. Like I'm one of them. And it, it did, I think, uh, turn around after the Japanese tour. And when we did the two months in Europe, it really uh, blossomed into something that felt more natural. And by then the audience knew and was ready for me. So, um, yeah, they, they really were. And, and of course uh, you spend some time with the Greg Kinn band and, and I spoke to Greg about that. And, and he told me that he said, he said, I knew Joe wasn't going to stay. He was too good to stay. But uh, talk to me about the fact that here you are, the top quality guitarist, must be in demand, but you've resisted for the most part being that guy that gets hired for every that gig. Um, was it was it something difficult to do to, to to not give in to temptation and take all those calls and say yes, I'll go play with Michael Jackson, yes, I'll go play with Kiss, or and just sort of stay to Joe and be a solo artist? Well, you know, um, there's you know there's the two ways to. Uh, to understand that is, is number one, I did resist because, um, I felt that if you were lucky enough to, to be able to play your own music on stage, um, you shouldn't do anything to mess that up. That's like, that is, that is really winning the biggest prize there is, is to play your own music on stage and to have people want to hear it. Absolutely. So, agreed. Yeah. Don't screw that up. I kept telling myself, you know, Cause, and and that's and I actually I thrive in that environment. So uh, I didn't I didn't just deep down I didn't want to do it. And then on the other hand, uh, I think that um, you know when I would there were only a few people out there that really wanted I could tell really wanted me to be me. And I, and I learned this quite early after you know I was I I actually gained success quite late in my career. I was already thirty years old. Uh, by the time I started having a you know a platinum record and was playing with Mick Jagger, so in those twenties um, I had struggled and I had all these experiences trying to be a good session guitar player, but I, I, I generally disliked it because the musicians were were often asked to imitate people, and I I just found the whole thing really distasteful. And uh, it, it went against my nature not to play like myself and to play like somebody else, you know. I just didn't like being told what to play. So then I get this gig playing with Mick Jagger, 
And this, I mean, Mick Jagger is an absolutely amazing human being. And uh, if not, you know, one of the best, the best rock and roll singer ever, performer ever, right? And he doesn't ask me to play like anybody. He says, oh, Joe, you just play whatever you want to play. You know, just bring it. Just bring you every night. And I thought, well, this is how I always imagined it would be. Not stuck in a little studio where someone who doesn't know what they're talking about thinks that just because they're paying you a few hundred dollars that they can tell you exactly what to play, you know. On the other hand, here I am with Mick Jagger, and he's telling me, Joe, be yourself. Run around on stage, go crazy, be yourself. Give, give the audience everything you got. And I thought, this is the way it should be. And, uh, and I ran into the same thing with Deep Purple. They actually were not expecting me to do anything like Richie. And they, because, you know, think about it. They, they already had Richie. They don't want another Richie. <laughs> so why would they hire a guy like me unless they wanted me? So they, they you know, encouraged me simply to play like Joe, you know, as much as I wanted to. Um, I think that's a, a real important thing that when you get exposed to that, you realize, well, I'm never going back. I'm never going to take another gig where someone says, I'll pay you X amount and you'll get to do this, that, and the other thing, but you have to sound like that other guy. I just say no. <laughs> yeah, and thank God for that. So, so let me just ask you then about what Richie Blackmore has said recently about you. He said, if you're always playing the correct notes, there's something wrong. And then he added, but that's not to say that Joe's not a very brilliant player. What do you say to that? I mean, it is correct to play the correct notes, but I guess he's talking about feel and groove. How do you sort of respond to that, I guess, criticism? Well, it's unfortunate when somebody that you look up to has something negative to say about you. So, you know, that part will always hurt. I, I would never, I, I wouldn't, you know, hide my uh, feelings about that. Um, but, you know, I get criticized on both sides of the fence for the opposite offenses. I don't, I don't quite understand it other than most of the time when someone has criticism, it's because they're, uh, they're challenged and they're, they feel that they have to strike out, you know? Uh, so I get it. I understand why he would have to say something negative. Um, so I just but, let him do it. Yeah. So, just, so let's I'm move on like to the positive. That, I, I can kind of laugh at it because right. I'm not like that myself. You know, um, I tend to just look at the positive, uh, of, you know, another musician and, and focus on that. Um, but, um, so, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Let's move on to the positive. I just, it, it's just it's a quote that came out in the last week, and I was like, hmm. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, and, and I know we only have twenty minutes, and so we're we're, we're technically out of time. But I, I just want to get a, an update on Chickenfoot. It is a band that I have supported. I have bought every CD and every reincarnation of the repackaged CDs because Sammy right. Hager and Michael Anthony and Chad and you are the real deal. I mean, that, that there's no other word for it. Um, so where are we in terms of chicken foot four or five or I mean you skip number two but is there new music are you giving up is it is it just a touring band is it just a we'll play festival band where are we what what's happening well um, you know a couple of nights ago we were on stage uh, at the Fillmore here in San Francisco and uh, we played a four song set acoustically. 
Um, that was crazy. Um, playing chicken foot songs on acoustic is wow. That's that's just crazy. But um, we had such a good time, and I know we were all wondering what was going to happen. And uh, that you know the the undeniable magic between us uh, was was palpable. You, could, you just, everybody felt it, and a- afterwards everybody said like, you guys have to record another record, and uh, everybody wanted to do it. So. Uh, everyone was hugs and smiles, and we said, "Let's let's do it." So I was pretty shocked because it looked like it wasn't going to happen this year, but I think it is going to happen this year. Um, so I think um, the next step is uh, writing and uh, see if we um, can all get in the same city at the same time again for a couple of days. Uh, that's the way the band operates. You know, we never it's, we never like have three months where we you know, rent a chateau in France and record an album. That'll never happen. We basically, it's, uh, you know, here and there, hit the ground running, uh, which I like in a way. It keeps the the, uh, uh, the juices flowing, the spirits up, and, and uh, we don't waste time. Right. Uh, so I think that's good. I'm not sure we'll ever be like a touring band, you know, like I don't think Sammy's thinking like I want to do 70 shows in four months and, uh, I don't think there's ever a, a chance of getting him on a tour bus ever again. <laughs> but I don't blame him. I mean, the man has already done it. You know what I mean? Uh, and uh, I, I understand now that, uh, you know, from his perspective, um, he doesn't want that feel like the job will stop him from being creative. And so I think that uh, we all have to work around each other uh to, to give each other what we need, you know, to uh, to get to this next step. So uh, I'm cool with just doing a record and and uh, or doing uh, a record and a you know a couple of maybe residencies uh, uh, around the world. Um, well, that would be great. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I think that whole thing about us touring, like you know, like Journey or Def Leppard or something like that. You know, I, that's not Chicken Foot. I don't think was ever going to do that and uh because we we all have other things we're doing so um but i've learned to love it (laughs) you know it's been frustrating in the past because um i'm so used to touring and i love touring i love the life and the the tour bus and i love traveling um but um it's different i guess when you're a singer and um those guys have accomplished a, a lot more in their careers than i have so they they have a different uh, set of desires at this point in their lives, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, since we're running out of time, I'll finish with this question. Uh, the last G3 tour, of course, had Phil Collin and uh, John Petrucci. Some fans took to saying, well, you know, Phil's a hair metal guy, but, but the tour was fantastic. The reviews were fantastic. Um, just talk to me quickly about Phil and and choosing him to do this, because a lot of people didn't expect it. They thought, you know, the, oh, the Def Leppard... But he was great. Um, just talk to me about Phil for a second. Yeah, uh, I met Phil uh, and his incredible musicianship at uh, a G4 experience that we did um, almost a year ago, uh, uh, Carmel, California. And the G4 experience is a, a camp I run uh, where uh, the students come, they spend four or five days, total immersive experience, and I invite three other uh, 
plus really amazing guitar players to kind of round out um, all the possibilities of playing guitar. And we actually had Tommy Emanuel doing the same thing at the same location, so he actually joined us. At one point, we had jams with with uh, Phil Collin and Paul Gilbert and Tommy Emanuel. I mean, it was it was just crazy, you know, how much guitar playing was on there and uh, how different everybody was. And uh, what blew me away, you know, uh, about Phil was that he he's a guy who had so much experience to share with the students. He's a, a guy who's been in a, a, a super successful stadium rocking rock band uh, for 30 plus years. And that experience alone is something that the students really wanted to understand. They wanted to know, how do you do that? How do you play in front of 50,000 people every single night and still keep your guitar in tune and pick the right gear and, you know, all the stuff guitar players are crazy about. I think what surprised everybody about Phil was not only could he technically uh, stand right next to Paul Gilbert and play, and, you know, Paul's just a total genius. (laughs) Yes. uh, But he also had this great level of taste and and a great... Uh, background uh, of music at his fingertips. Uh, I think people weren't were were not ready to to uh, to uh, receive the uh, the like the heavy blues influence that he had, and how he could switch it into shredding if he wanted to. And then, of course, when he would then go and he'd play hysteria, you would just you know, it would blow your mind because he sounded exactly like the record. Not only his playing, but his singing. And his performance, and uh, and then they and when you of course when you're you know 20 feet away from him in these camps, you realize this guy can really keep it together. It's, he's not like a product of the studio or of the MTV cameras. This is the real deal. This guy can actually stand up in a teeny little room and play hysteria for you and it, and sing it at the same time, and it sounds exactly like the record. Like he's you know he's a true musician. And uh, and we know, of course, he can scale up to play at Rocket Rio if he has to, you know. Um, so after that, and, and he's such an amazing person. He's just like the greatest guy ever. Uh, uh, you know, we, of course, were thinking it would be great to have him on a G3. It'll blow people's minds because they're thinking, you know, well, that's the guy from Def Leppard, but they have no idea what they're in store for, you know. And once he would unleash his own special fury, of course, they'd be totally blown away. And he was a great team player. I mean, he had to stand right in between John Petrucci and myself. And, you know, John is a total monster. <laughs> and every night we're all smiles. Every night we had such a great time. Uh, and and uh, I do it again with him anytime. Oh, it was an absolutely great tour. And uh, Joe, absolute pleasure. Of course, the date in Montreal is May 25th at the MTELUS, formerly the Metropolis. And uh, just looking forward to it. Th- thank you so much for today. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Thanks. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. I have one last question for you, Alan. Uh, of course, the box set is coming out in June of 2018, but the not in this lifetime tour, the reunion, not reunion tour, depending on who you ask, of course, started in 2016. Wouldn't it have been a wise marketing move to have this box set ready 
to sell in conjunction with all the excitement of the Not In This Lifetime tour? Why Why two years later? Well, that's a very good question. And I'd, I'd put it in a more simple perspective. If you're going to celebrate the 30th anniversary of something, put it out in the 30th year that it was released as opposed to the 31st. And I can only think that they had to spend an awful long time deciding on which tattoos, temporary or otherwise, they had to put in the box. Right. Um, but basically, um, it would have been nice for it to come out in July of last year because that would have been 30 years. Yeah, that would have made more sense. Now, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, I had heard rumors of this deluxe edition as far back as 2014. Now, how much of it was just random fan speculation and how much of it was serious work but if it was being worked on back in 2014 and 2015 why the delay i mean we the songs were recorded in 1986 it's not like we were waiting for for slash to add a guitar lick or or axel had to come and sing a vocal i don't know explain this to me (laughs) why why not just pump it out Welcome to the world of Guns N' Roses, Mitch. I know, right? It's it's, but it's it's here and uh, price price forsaken or not, it it's 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 going to be it's going to be great. I mean, once we we put it in the the stereo and just listen to the tunes and forget that it cost me two hundred dollars. Don't tell my wife. I hope she doesn't listen to the show. Um, just don't tell my wife. Uh, ho- hopefully, uh, the music will will inspire us and take us away from anything else. And uh, there you go. Any any final comments before we get back to Michael James Jackson talking Kiss, L.A. Guns, and everything else? Uh, no, just have a splendid day and uh, be aware that we've got a hockey game coming up. We do. We we love our hockey. And uh, there you go. And on that, here is part two of my conversation with producer Michael. James Jackson. Talk to me a little bit more about Creatures of the Night, because you, you, you mentioned that the band had this sense of urgency, that it really had to step up and it was going to define who they were going forward. And yet, as we know now, it it's not a, a traditional Kiss album in the sense where it was four guys locked in a room and came out with ten songs. We started bringing in all kinds of special guests. Was that a particular challenge for you, trying to make a Kiss album, knowing that Steve Ferris was on it, knowing that Adam Mitchell is on it, knowing that that Ace Frehley may or may not be on it, Vinny Vin? Was that a challenge to get a Kiss sound but not have the Kiss band in its entirety? It uh, for me, and maybe this is a result of the fact that my background was not so deeply in hard rock and roll. Um, everything was Kiss. Everything sounded like Kiss. The record that we were making, whether it was Steve Ferris playing or not, uh, or Robin Ford playing the solo on I Still Love You, it was a Kiss record because nothing was bigger than Gene and Paul. And um, so I didn't think that we were altering or, or changing something um, I think that one of the reasons why that record is successful and people have such a strong feeling about it is that it's a very cohesive record. Uh, and yeah, there are some guest appearances there for sure, but they contributed something in the style and manner of Kiss, uh, except it wasn't Kiss playing, it was somebody else playing. And there wasn't that much of it, frankly. 
but when it when it did occur, I thought it really contributed, and so we were all good with it. Can you explain to me, in a sense, why it occurred? Was it just the band couldn't hit those notes? The band couldn't get that feeling. There were friends that needed to, you know, why was there a need to bring in all these people? Why were they not just, well, we'll just wait for Paul to do this tomorrow? Well, at that time, um, Ace was not there and was not really involved. So that meant that there was a, a fourth partner who was missing. So we filled some of those spaces with some other people who, like I said, I think really contributed something special. Correct. And um, uh, the record doesn't not sound like Kiss. It doesn't not feel like Kiss. But they lent something else. They brought something else that created a little more dimension um, that all of us felt very good about, still do. When uh, Now, of course, Ace wasn't there. How did that sort of drama play out? Or, or, or was there a drama? Because the band is sort of falling apart. Ace is not going to show up anymore. He's not there. That they're, they're conscious about doing, you know, finding a new guitar player, whether it was Doug Aldridge or Richie Sambor or Vinnie Vincent and all these other people that they tried out. How did that affect the work in progress? Did it, did it distract them to a point where um, it delayed things? or it, 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 it Just talk to me a little bit about that. I can talk about it to a certain a certain degree only because right. I didn't live the entire history with those guys building up to that particular moment. So the relationship artistically and politically with Ace um, was something that I wasn't really involved in. I was my focus was the record and how to get the record done in the best possible way and satisfy all the goals that we had set for ourselves. Without having Ace there or having that the fourth partner there on a permanent basis, um, we did what we did. Um, but I, like I said, was not very involved. In fact, was not involved at all in the relationship with Ace and what that was or had been. Um, I was just very focused on the responsibility of trying to actually make the record and have it be great. And, and it did turn out great. Of course, uh, you've been asked before about the drum sound, the Eric Carr drum sound. Um, what was sort of the your sort of producer, for the lack of a better brain, going into that? Because the band had sort of weakened up a little bit on Unmass and, and the Elder, again, just wasn't where it should be, was it just that we needed to have something so bombastic and so over the top that, that we just had to focus in on getting this great drum sound? And, it, and it's, by the way, it's a fantastic drum sound. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you know, I had learned a lot about recording drums from some really brilliant people that I worked with as engineers. And I always mention in... When I'm answering this particular question, I always mention Telefunk and 251s as a microphone because it's just an extraordinary tool. Um, there was no... We didn't sit around in a circle and say, we have to come up with a drum sound that will blow everybody away. <clears throat> we were interested in blowing ourselves away with, with something that sounded great. <clears throat> and so um, I used very specialized microphones 
We moved into moved the drum kit into a room by itself. We were recording two things at once. One was the drums, and the other was the ambience in the room which the drums created. Um, and then Bob Clearmountain really assisted when he was mixing the record. And you probably know this already because I've already talked about this, how he took the signal and sent it down into an elevator shaft and picked up the resonance with an old tube microphone at the top of the shaft and blended that in with the drum sound that already sounded pretty great. So we wound up with something that was unique and uh, worked for it. And I love the fact that people always comment on the drum sound. But for me, I can't really talk about that without also mentioning Eric. Because, you know, the sound of the drums are completely connected with the way that he played, that he hit the drums, the energy he had behind it. But more than anything else, the passion that he had for KISS. And the fact that being in KISS was, to my mind, with Eric, the greatest accomplishment that he he could ever possibly have. It meant so much to him personally to be in KISS that when he played, he wanted to really sound great, not just because he was a musician and a good drummer. He wanted it to be great because of KISS. And um, I had a lot of respect for Eric because he... um, you can't ever separate the quality of a sound from the musician playing it. There was a band that was produced, I can't remember which band it was, and some bass player called me in the middle of the night and said, um, can you get me the same strings that Jaco Pistorius uses? I want to sound like Jaco Pistorius. And I laughed and I said to him, I said, well, yeah, I'd have to get you his hands. And then I'd have to also get you, you know, the his amount soul. of force, that, his soul. <laughs> right. So you want to sound like Jaco Pistorius, guess what? That's not going to happen. And getting you the strings would really be a waste of money, man, because you really um, you need to work on your playing and not think that just getting somebody else's sound is going to do it. And those drums and the performance on Creatures is Eric. And the quality of that sound, and it is big, and, and it's unusual and it's different, and it's a calling card for that record, but it still will always be a calling car card with Eric Carr yeah. <clears throat> because he really contributed. Was there a thought of reproducing that sound or, or having the drums as dialed in when you got to lick it up or was lick it up saying, no, we're going to start completely new. We're going to do everything different. Or did you look back at creatures and say, you know, wouldn't be a bad idea to go with those drums again or, or that sound. Like, was there any talk of bringing that that production value into the Lick It Up sessions? Hindsight is always interesting. And um, that question never really came up. You know, we did one job at at that moment in time with the people that we did, and Creatures is the result. And, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, Lick It Up was a different project. It was a different album. It was a long time later um, and had a bit of a different vibe to it, but it was still Kiss. Yeah, very much so. Now, now, just before I, I, I move on here, I just want to uh, let the folks know that if they head over to uh, kissaddiction.com, you can get Michael James Jackson autographed 
RIAA uh, certified Creatures of the Night gold album and the uh, same thing, but the uh, certified Lick It Up platinum albums. They're both on sale there. And that, that's actually a great item to get, right? I mean, these, these are great. I, well, I think that they're cool because the fans, have, they actually asked for them. Uh, and that's why they're there. So it really pleased me and made me feel very proud of it, too. Right. And they're authentic. The, and they're very authentic, and they yep. come signed or unsigned. You have your choice. So, all right, let me let me quickly get back to uh, to Creatures of the Night. And uh, just again, it's kissaddiction.com if you want to go check that out, and I certainly suggest that you do. Uh, Vinnie Vincent came into the band, and I had a chance to speak to Vinnie about two weeks ago, actually. Uh, hmm. What was that like? You know, there, there was... <laughs> There's so much that has gone down in the history of Kiss and so many sort of stories that have come up, but he was a great songwriter. He is a great songwriter. His his lead guitar playing on the songs are very tasteful. What was it like working with him? And, and you know, did he help? How much did he help contribute to the album? You know, it was a moment in time and Vinny contributed a great deal. Whenever I'm asked about Vinny, I always say immediately he's a very, very talented guy. You know, there were moments where he and Gene or he and Paul didn't quite um, blend as well as they could have, or Paul had a different idea about the way a solo should go and, you know, w- would sing that solo for Vinny and Vinny would play it. And, you know, there was a lot of collaboration going on. But it was. Um, <clears throat> but I think that Vinny is very, very talented. It's just um, personality-wise and direction-wise, um, that relationship with Gene and Paul lasted for a period of time and then didn't. Um, but I take nothing away from Vinny Vincent. No, he contributed a lot. He he really did, and he he was telling me a story of. Uh, at the I Love It Loud video shoot, which maybe you weren't at, that Ace Fraley was there performing, and, and he was sitting in the wings looking at that. Was there any any contribution on Creatures from Ace Fraley? Uh, we know that Bob Kulik played a little bit. Uh, was, was either Bruce Kulik or Ace Fraley involved at all in the recording of this album? Um, I made a mistake once when I was asked in an interview. Maybe this is why I don't do too many of them, that I had misremembered, actually. Right. And Paul corrected me when he and I talked about it. Misremembered it that actually that Ace had played on Creatures. Ace didn't play on Creatures. Ace did play on one of the tracks or two of the tracks on Killers. But I, I couldn't tell you which titles. But no, he didn't play on Creatures. So uh, let's quickly move on here, because I know we're going to run out of time, but let's move on to uh, to Lick It Up. Another album, but this one very transformational. Creatures of the Night came out. The tour didn't do as well as everybody wanted to. You know, there was a, a bit of a disappointment that Ace was out. But then Lick It Up comes out. There's no makeup. There's a big hoo-ha or a big, uh, you know, a big... People are, are excited. Um, talk to me about that album and, and, and getting the band now. Because now you've got the four parts again. You've got Vinny, who's there. You've got Eric. You've got Gene and Paul. It's now a band, for the lack of a better word, again. Talk to me about that working environment and how different it was to Creatures and just what was sort of the band's um, 
approach going in? Well, it was the same idea in terms of the fact that we weren't going to be in the studio unless we had the songs. And we waited until we had the songs, and Adam Mitchell actually was also involved as a co-writer again, and uh, as I recall. And uh, it was another record, another time, and the band was much more comfortable in terms of not feeling certain pressures. Um, and it was a great time for rock. I mean, uh, Ozzy had been doing some stuff at the time. Uh, Sabbath had been doing some great stuff in you know early '80s. So, so this 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 desire for hard rock was was definitely building by '83. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that their timing with Look It Up was good, and the taking off of the makeup was a big deal. That was a card that they hadn't played. Um, but I also think it's wonderful now that when they they go and perform, the makeup's on. Because people are, people love Kiss, and you know what that spirit is that Kiss represents, um, is really great. So, talk to me a little bit about bringing in Rick Derringer. Because when I spoke to Vinny a couple of weeks ago, he was um, understanding but disappointed. Let's put it that way. Um, what was going on with there where we needed to bring Rick in? Was the solo just not working? Was it was it just too bombastic? Was it too out of this world? It just didn't capture the spirit of the song. How does Rick Jeringer get the call? Uh, first of all, it, it probably was all of those things that caused that call to be made. And, um, you know, as I recall, and once again, it was a long time ago, um, you know, if somebody like Derringer came in and played, we we didn't know for sure that it was going to work. But it, in the case with Derringer, it did work. Um, and Vinny was disappointed. And I think there were a number of occasions where it was simply a different angle of artistic taste. Gene and Paul saw one thing, Vinny saw another. And that happened repeatedly, which was unfortunate. Because... Uh, Vinny's a good player, but style-wise, it just didn't. It, it just really wasn't what Gene and Paul were thinking of, or what they felt comfortable with at the time. So Paul actually contributed a lot in terms of helping Vinny do his solos and coming up with various melodic ideas. And Vinny is also a very melodic player, so he could certainly do that. But I think that personality-wise, it, there just were some things that through time. Um, became uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just want to quickly, I, I forgot this question about going back to Creatures. When they were going through sort of the auditions with all these different guitarists, your Doug Aldriches and your Richie Samboras and all these people, did they ever come into the studio and try to actually play on the Creatures songs to see if they would fit the sound? Or were the auditions completely, utterly separate and they, the two never sort of, those two worlds didn't come together? Uh, reaching outside of the band on that particular record was um, a conclusion that came after we fooled around with trying something and then decided, you know, maybe we should bring in somebody else and they can make a contribution here. We'll see how that is. Okay. But none of it was part of the audition process where we're going to no. try to find the new member. Okay. Um after Lick It Up, and, and, and I do want to move on to some of the other stuff because we're running out of time, but you 
are part of the Armored Saint debut release, March of the Saint. Very, of course, different than uh, Paul Williams, <laughs> right? Uh, right. Talk to me how you got involved in into the more thrash metal scene uh, and that first album, because you're just doing Kiss, you've got these big things, and now again you're going back for to a rookie band and you're helping develop their sound and you like beginnings. Um, what was it like working on that album? Because, uh, you know, John Bush, man, he can sing. Guy, The guy's got pipes. John Bush can definitely sing. And uh, when I was connected with him, he had a huge amount of potential. You know, I was, how can I put it, hesitant to take on that project. I wasn't sure if I was the right person for it, but the record label lobbied me a lot to come in and try and help these guys, particularly because of the Kiss records. Right. So we got into it and and did the very best we could. And John... John is a very talented guy, without question. So, yeah. and uh, as far as engineering, I had Whitman, Dave Whitman, who had done Foreigner 4, and um, really a superb engineer. I'm, I don't have a, a lot oh, of... Um, memories of that. So, but, yeah. so I'll finish with these two questions then. Uh, after that, in 1991, I mean, you, you did, of course, Hurricane Slave to the Shrill, but you also do Hollywood Vampires, which is the L.A. Guns album. Mm. And I believe I told you off-air that that is probably, by far, their best album. And I know that the guys in the band certainly... Um, talk highly of it um talk to me about working on that la guns album and and they were sort of trying something a little different when you listen to songs like kiss my love goodbye and crystallize they're not these traditional power ballads they're not these traditional rock songs there's a there's a little more space in them they breathe a little better um what was it like on working on that album another great album by the way you you are you are a master of great albums i must say that's such a kind remark for you to make. You can call me anytime. Yeah. Um, I, that was not an easy record to make. Some of the material wasn't there when we started. Um, the band was, there was some internal stress with the band. Um, some problems they had. Um, what I recall, I just recall it, it was not an easy record, but it turned out really well, and I was really pleased with the way that it turned out. Um, and again, I had great, great engineering help, um, and Tracy, I think, is genuinely superbly talented and um, was the heart and soul of that band always. Um, I have a lot of respect for Tracy as a player. Yeah, Tracy's an incredible player. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with this, and, and I'll just do a quick side note. You also did Checkered Pass with Michael DeBars, and it's always important to, to throw out a little love to Michael DeBars. He's he, a he, great guy. <laughs> right? You've got to yeah, love, love Michael and Checkered Pass. Um, so a- after, you know, the hurricane... Steve Jones, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, because that, that's, in fact, that Checkered Pass was sort of this whole rock super group, right? I mean, you got Steve, you've got Clem Burke of Blondie, Nigel. Uh, right. What a great band that was. It's too bad that they're sort of 
Well, there is, there's only one album as far as I remember, right? Yeah, there's one. I, I think there's only one album. But, uh, yeah, everybody tried real hard, Michael, Michael especially. Yeah, and and for whatever reason, it just didn't fit into the to the to the times. But um, but what happens in the '90s? Because you again, you you've done Kiss, you've done Armored Saint, you've done the Paul Williams, the Checkered Past, the the Hurricane, and then you sort of stop producing, or or the albums you were making didn't get the the attention. What happened? Why did it sort of just say, okay, I'm moving on? Uh, well. You know, I decided that I wanted to do some other things with my life. I got involved in supervising music for film, and I became a music supervisor for probably like eight or nine films. Um, Went back and produced some more. Made another Paul Williams record, actually, for the Japanese, for a Japanese label, 1996. Um, And then not long after that, I started a company called Manuscript Originals with Graham Nash and several other um, music industry associates. And that company was about honoring the classic songs of our times and the roles those songs have played in our lives. Um, And we did this by going to great songwriters and giving them museum archival paper and having them handwrite out the title and lyrics of their most famous songs and illustrating those pieces. And... um, it was a wonderful company. We ran into a wall probably in 2007, 2008 when the recession happened. And so it just kind of uh, got stalled. But it's, it's still there quietly. Uh, and I do a number of other things. But yeah, I did step aside from producing records. I did 26, 27 records and uh, seemed like a good run. Was it a hard decision or was it time? It felt like it was time because there were other things I was interested in doing. Okay. It, you know, and if any of these guys ever called you up, L.A. Guns or Kiss or any of them, said, hey, listen, we're doing another comeback album. We, we, we want to see if we have that magic. Would you consider it or is it automatically, no, I'm done, done, done? Um, I'm so far away from the done, done, done part that... You know, if there was a reason to really consider it, and I'm not talking about money, if there was a reason to really consider it, um, I'd sit down and have the conversation. I'd be very, very clear on what I felt I had to really contribute that um, would be of value. Um, but in terms of going back in the world and, and producing again um, all the time, no. But under special circumstances it would be worth uh, thinking about probably yeah it really would uh, i would certainly love to uh, to hear another kiss record with you or even have tom cochran call you up and say hey got a solo album that needs some production but uh, there you go absolute pleasure i will remind the folks again kissaddiction.com you can get the michael james jackson autographed riaa certified creatures of the night album and lick it up and uh, there you go, uh, Michael. Absolute pleasure. It has been for me like 20 years in the making. Uh, you're one of those guys I, I just wanted to talk to. I, again, a couple of those albums, uh, Creatures of the Night, Hollywood Vampires, hold a very special place in my heart, and Lick It Up, great album. Um, but wow, just uh, great pleasure talking to you today. You too. Thank you so much. 
This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.